0: specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com.
1: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: What if you woke up and suddenly realized you had more time? Not just hours, days, or weeks, but decades. Decades. Aviva Wittenberg-Cox thinks about time in not only decades, but in 25-year increments. As someone who thought in her 30s she would be retired at age 60, she now finds herself starting anew again, refreshed by the ability to start something new because she may only be at the halfway point of her life. With this point of view, Aviva wrote a Harvard Business Review article that instead of focusing on the challenges and stresses of being a working parent, She instead focused on the joy, knowing that this would be one of many life transitions. There were four areas that Aviva, looking back now, wish were easier to remember while she was in the thick of raising her family. One of the most important was loving your spouse or partner and not demoting your relationship to the bottom of the pile. According to Aviva, longevity means that more than ever, we need to plan for change. Using the gift of decades requires acknowledging their existence and deciding what you want to do with them. People say you can't have it all, but the gift of time gives us new options to have a lot more than we ever thought possible. Please enjoy my conversation with Aviva Wittenberg-Cox. So Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast.
1: Thank you, Paul. Lovely to be here with you.
2: And and before we hit record, I was we were having this conversation off air about how to pronounce your name because I just wanted to make sure it's not a name that you typically come across here stateside. So, um, but I came across how we were, were introduced, or I was introduced to your work, um, was through a Harvard Business School article, which was titled. What I Learned About Working Parenthood After My Kids Grew Up. And I will tell you, and I will read this verbatim for our our audience, the first line is what grabbed my attention. So most people know that I have a set of soon-to-be 12-year-old triplets and a 10-year-old. And the first sentence of your article was, there are so many articles about the challenges and stresses of being a working parent, but this is an article about joy. It's like you had me at hello, Aviva. So why don't why don't we start with um giving our audience a, a little bit of background about who you are and exactly how you came to write this Harvard Business article?
1: Uh, who I am is always a complicated question because we can't carry so many hats, right? So I am a Canadian-born French, Swiss, Canadian citizen who's lived uh, most of my adulthood in Europe, but I grew up in Canada. And I've worked for the last 25 years on issues of gender balance in the business world all over the world. So I've been in over 40 countries working with leaders, mostly men, actually, on issues of how do you gender balance and nationality balance large organizations. And so the issues, of course, of personal life and work, family balance are intrinsic to the topic. And I've seen it through many, many lenses. Um, So that's a little bit about my background. I'm currently, as I mentioned to you, uh, as we opened, I'm currently at Harvard doing the unusual thing at 60 of going back to school. Um, So I spent a year in the advanced leadership initiative which is a program designed for older people who want to transition into purposeful third quarters.
2: Well and that's going to be a topic that that I want to focus on too is is the work that you do on transitions and um you know now that we're living older um I don't think many of our mindsets have changed I think we I think in one of the articles you put like I think these were your words like when I was in my 30s, I thought I'd be retired at 60, and now here I am at 60, and just getting going again. So um, I, I think I'm really looking. I've been I've been really looking for this conversation. So how did how did the the Harvard Business article come about? I think you kind of just alluded to the fact that you work with you know a lot of bigger companies, um, and you are raising your own kids at the same time. Um, but walk us through like how how did that framework of that article come about
1: well a- and i've been a coach for 20 years right so i've worked with a lot of especially executive women but leaders of all kinds uh working their way through trying to conciliate a, a fairly impossible equation right how do you balance work and family in a time where we know work is 24-7, increasingly stressful, very gig, um, you know, the, the pandemic has shifted our attitudes to work to some extent, but it's a non-obvious topic. And so I've been on all of these issues of how do you pace careers, how do you balance, how do you have a life, how do you survive and thrive, hopefully in both your personal and professional lives. For Decades Um, and so I've been charting my own, you know, you always chart your own experience with what you learn from everybody else's and I was just really struck when I entered what I call third quarter, which is kind of post 50 how unexpectedly delicious it was and nobody told me this (laughs) coming you know and so we have this rather youth-oriented ageist culture that actually has this hidden secret that these may be the best decades of your life and i think it's underwritten undersold and undershared uh so i thought it was time to try. And and it may also be, of course, a new thing, right? We are now aging in a way that's quite different from the way our parents and grandparents did. We've been gifted an extra 30 years of life by science in just one century. So we are actually not only living longer, stretching towards these 80, 90, 100-year-old lives, um, but we're also beginning to understand how to live much healthier, which means that when you're turning fifty, in my current calculations, you're only halfway through, and that means, oh my God, you wake up suddenly as your children are just sort of going out the door. You know um, that you're empty-nest and you're looking around, and suddenly you don't have quite as much to do. In fact, you have this gaping hole of time that you also weren't expecting and you have as much time in front of you as you do behind. And most 50 year olds kind of feel old, right? They feel like, oh my God, I can be slowing down and I'm empty nest and I'm post this and it'll be retirement next. And I think that's all wrong. I think we are only just beginning now at 50 to become who we really are. um, Post some of our very important roles, which are creating families and parenting kids. But the joy and so the joy is in discovering this my goodness, you kind of have a second youth with the additional benefit of the love and delight of these charming humans, if you've been lucky enough to um, have them turn out reasonably well, uh, who are in your life and supportive champions and admirers of what you do next
2: well it's that's there's a lot to unpack there which is just fascinating cuz it, it just this morning when my wife Teresa, and i were getting ready to start our day she made some comment about being old and i'm like i'm not old we're not old and so i i turned 46 this year she turned 48 and it it was it was a perfect setup and she didn't even know i was talking to you today about about this topic um but i think she's going to find it Uh, extremely interesting because I, when I was reading your article, I think what the angle that I took was, okay, I'm a parent today, but it was when I was reading the article, like unpacking a, a, a unwrapped present, if you will, because I could see, oh my gosh, like after my kids get through high school or or college it, it's going it's going to be another life transition and i think that's one of the things that we've really highlighted on this show over the last two plus years now of, of having it is that life is all about transitions and the unexpected and the and the the expected but they occur i think without us necessarily knowing about them absolutely.
1: um absolutely yeah so you're what 47 and you're tw- your triplets. I'll be are-
2: I'll be 47 in May of 23 and my my triplets are about to turn 12 in two more weeks and my plus one Mackenzie turned 10 a month ago
1: <laughs> I'm just you know you map it out i always make people draw this and write down you know their life lines from zero to 100 and what the big things are so you know if you just add your kids are 12 18 they often leave for college right which gives mm-hmm. you six years well 46 plus six gives you 52 so when you're 52 this massive tsunami that completely changed your life and your existence is Going to be traipsing probably fairly contentedly out the door without even really looking back over their shoulders and yeah you know you'll have to be at the end of a phone call but it is such an unexpected shift in just the volume of time work and energy that you have to devote every single day to their charms right and so the joy of both being a parent is one to realize that the stress and inevitable struggles of being a hands-on working parent are really high, but it's short. And that's what we don't realize, that in just a few short years, it's all gonna be in the rear view mirror. And then what do you wanna do? And I think it's incredibly hard to imagine your own future self. It's almost impossible, right? We're really bad at this. Um, And so I always invite people to really think at your age, rather than thinking like your wife and like almost everybody that, you know, you're getting a bit on and your parents, your kids are moving on. It's you are gently ending your first half. What are you going to do with the second half?
2: Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting point because I feel like I've been having this conversation with the families that I work with um, really more in depth the last several years, because even, even somebody that, that says, okay, Paul I really hate my job. I got to find a way out of here. I'm like, okay, well let's well, let's one take a, a a deep breath, but what would you do? Like if if you didn't if you had all the money in the world and didn't have to work, what would you do? Like I know you as a person, you have this, you know, hard you, you've spent your heart and soul into this career and it's not where you want it to be right now. So, what else do you want to think about doing? Because just sitting at home, or if you have hobbies, if 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 you're even lucky enough to develop a hobbies, like during this time when you have kids and work and whatnot, most people don't. It's it's it it's very challenging, and a lot of people are, I think, afraid to stop and give themselves permission to give themselves that that gift of time to say, okay, wow, Paul's making a good point, or Aviva's making a good point. What do I really want to do? I think that scares people. People don't want to. um...
1: I think, think, you know, we underestimate how ageist we are against our future selves and against old people in general, including us in a few years. And, And that the whole economic model in which we live is geared to yesterday's three phases of life, learn, work, retire. And that's no longer relevant in our hundred year lives. Um, Those aren't, we will now have four quarters instead of those three. And so if you're listening to this, my invitation is rather than doing what most Americans today think of as being a successful way of aging, which is just to keep doing and looking what you're doing for as long as you can until you can't. My invitation is, oh my God, life is so much longer than you think. So you can have actually multiple lives and careers, but you might wanna think about them a little bit ahead. So I think you're, at your age is actually the perfect time. You know, you still have a few years of kids and the current career and all, but you can just begin to see that in a in a planable cycle, you may be able to start dreaming about doing something entirely new i'm in one of these programs in universities that i think will spread which are very specifically geared at midlife transitions to invite people as they enter their 50s yeah to start thinking about the next chapter post some of the great things they've done that they may not want to do for another thirty or forty years. So if you don't want to keep doing what you're doing, and some very I was you know very successful in my first career, but you know mastery can often lead to boredom. One yes, one pillar of burnout that people don't talk about very much is just boredom, doing the same thing, repeating the same thing year in year out, no matter how brilliant and wonderful, and even how needed or welcomed it is still boring to the person who has to emit it for decades.
2: So why don't we why don't we pivot back to the article because what I would like for you to to walk us through are these um more things that you wish you would have known back then about when it when it came to being in the thick of things um during your 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 working years and your and your you know parenting years as well.
1: Then you're gonna to have to remind me what they are because no, I wrote an article a few years back. Give no, me give it's,
2: me it's fine. Can- I've I've got the article right in front of me. So this this I I wanted my audience to to really know these because they they like I mentioned earlier they really resonated with me. So the first thing you listed was don't sweat the small stuff. One bad week doesn't make you a bad parent when they grow up. Your kids probably won't even remember it
1: yeah they'll remember something else i mean it's very uh, memory is such a hilarious thing so your kids always resent and and harbor some terrible thing you did which didn't even mark you and the ones that you are guilty about often they forget i had that happened several times with my kids um so yes i think most parents beat themselves over them today, you know, where parenting is becoming such a competitive sport. uh, (laughs) Literally. (laughs) We're benchmarking and beating ourselves over. Um, And I think the, the bottom line on all that is kids don't really react to what you do. They really react to who you are. And so you know you want them to read. They're never going to read if you don't have books all around the house and you're not reading and everything else. So I think that's just a bit of a relax. Um, it's become such a crazy competitive game. What kind of progeny you're raising? <laughs> um, and and I think you don't have to quite measure every fight and every failing along the way. You know, teach kids that you fail well and then you recover. That's the secret of resilience.
2: I think that's perfectly stated. Your your second point was, don't burn out being a perfectionist parent. Instead, invest sustainably and regularly in yourself and your kids.
1: Yes. So, um, you know, I think burnout everywhere right now is at crisis point. I mean, we've got mental health issues among kids and parents. Um, And I think that comes from the slightly irreconcilable pressures of trying to juggle work and family. And so in most of my coaching, I tell people just 80% everything. Don't be so 150%, neither on work nor um, nor on parenting, right? Go gentler in the second quarter from 25 to 50, where there's just too much to do. It is impossible. They do this to you in school. I remember when I went and did an MBA, right? They give you too much to do. And the sign of leadership is being able to prioritize carefully and mindfully and eliminate a lot of things and not feel bad about that. And so the invitation is to consciously choose what you really care about, what you really prioritize, including, you know, quality time with your kids, but also quality time with yourself so you you can cope with your charming children when they become difficult um, and that requires time to yourself right which a lot of particularly mothers I'm gonna I'm gonna hit out at mothers on this a bit. Uh, I think the p- perfectionism is slightly gendered because society is so tough on women right and we have to be look perfect be perfect cook perfect mother perfect um, enough to just dump perfectionism across the board.
2: Yeah, no, I would agree with you because I think, I feel like I have a, I don't think she'll mind if I say this. I have a front row seat with Teresa that I, I, with what you just said, I, I can see that with her and um, I wish she would take more time for herself (laughs) to think about, you know, what, what it is that she wants to do um, not only today, but, but in the future as well. Um, Your third point is love them a lot. But keep your ambition focused on your own career, not theirs.
1: Yes. Well, so there's a quote from I think it was Jung that you know the worst thing a parent can do is uh, project their unachieved dreams onto their children, um, and we know this. Everybody knows this. There are a million movies. <laughs> the chart just how terrible that is for children. Um, and so I think I, I agree with Eric from a psychologist, who says, you know, um, again, a mother in particular's role, most important role f- in parenting is to be happy. And if you can nourish that idea is role modeling that you can be happy in a crazy world, you can find some kind of inner peace and serenity, Um, so that your children can believe that it exists rather than hoping that your children, I hear this all the time. Our kids are going to save the planet. No, I'm sorry. We better get going on saving the planet, all of us together, but our generation in particular, and not count on the kids to be doing what maybe we should be doing. And that's just the same on careers. It's the same on anything. If you're, hoping to achieve your dreams through them, they just become a means to your own agenda, not a healthy thing for either generation.
2: Good point. So your last your last uh, point here was, if you are married, and I think I, of, of the four, I think this is the, the, the really one that I want to stress the most, and we're going to follow up with some other questions on this, but you wrote, if you are married, Love your spouse, and don't demote your relationship to the bottom of the priority pile. No one will thank you. Your kids are learning relationship skills from you. Inspire them.
1: Well, yeah. I don't know if you could have wrote
2: that any better.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we, I, yeah. I mean, again, they kids don't do what you say; they look at what you are. And so, one of the most Im- impactful things that your children learn, of course, is the relationships between whoever's parenting, whether you're alone or at least I grew up with a single mom. So I learned all of my leadership lessons from her. But if I had, and for people who have couples who are raising them, they will be extraordinarily attuned to the quality of your relationship and it's worth investing in. I I raised my children in France and was always deeply impressed by the hierarchy in a lot of french couples that the couple always came first i never seen anything like it you know uh, Amer- the american yeah, certainly not culture here
2: makes- in the states
1: <laughs> no the american culture is kids first and it does them no favors i really found that that makes kids less happy than watching parents who take priority go out once a week at least on a date night have time and even in terms of conversation at a dinner table that they are interested in each other's thoughts and model good conversations good listening good feedback and mutual support which then the kids learn is all about what relations are are for and so yeah don't don't give your kids the last word the first word the middle word don't make them kings of their little castles it is one of the greatest disservices we do our children so yeah priorities at home reflect a lot (laughs)
2: <laughs> I agree. So I, I think that's actually a really good transition into um, one of, I think one of the other hidden gems of your work is this tech talk that you gave, and we'll be sure to link to this in our show notes, titled conscious coupling, managing dual careers. And in it, you made a couple notes, one of which or points, one of which you've already referenced, I think we'll keep coming back to is this, um, be sure that you're playing the long game. Again, it goes back to, I think we, we don't think we're going to live as long as we we probably will. And, but the other th- point that you mentioned, and one that I worry about often, um, and especially dealing with, with the families I work with who are between the ages of 50 and 60, is that we have, we have been seeing surging divorce rates with that age group. And so, if there was a couple points that you could pull out of out of that TED talk for us, if you could, if you could reference those, and then talk about this this um, divorce rate circumstance with with people in their fifties and sixties, and I know you've written a book on that as well that I'd like to talk about.
1: Yeah. So I I, I personally left a twenty two year marriage when I turned fifty. Oh, I'm Pretty well, as a, as a, because I was turning 50 and I, th- I, I think many people wake up just as we're t- discussing, right? At the end of a very dense second quarter, 25 to 50, where you're doing a lot of things under a lot of pressure. Um, and at the end of that, you reap, I think, some of what you've sown, right? So have you invested in your couple? Have you ignored? Uh, The big shift I'm pointing to in a lot of my work is that the role of women in a lot of couples has shifted, right? So the expectation um, of our parents' generation where there was usually one lead career and one follower career has shifted as women have become more educated, more employed, more powerful, and higher earning, that now 83% of couples in the US are dual career couples, which means they both work. And so then the added pressure of Q2 is whose career comes first, which creates tensions, competitions, resentments of all kinds, coping mechanisms, And some couples manage to work through those collegially and find some way of balancing, taking turns, negotiating. Those are the ones that stay together. The ones that I think you see coming to you in their 50s and 60s are those where they weren't happy with the way that negotiation came out. And typically on the whole, your, your listeners will also know, mostly it's women walking out the door, right? Two thirds of marriages, uh, of divorces, which by the way, divorces have been dropping for 30 years among the educated, right? But this last problem is how people negotiate the empty nest post first career years and whether, um The women, I'll summarize it rather in a gendered way, so I know I'm going to irritate some of your listeners, but I'll say it anyways, is mostly what, on, on the whole, right now where we are in history, come 50, women have a sense of it's my turn. And the negotiation begins with, are you, partner of mine, ready to support me, applaud me, even, perhaps, maybe, to the slight cost to your own career plans or visibility, and how those two forces work out and whether you get to finally take turns. I'm sure you've seen this in your own couple, Paul. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you probably, for for many, the women take the care precedence in Q2, and then they want to fly and flourish and become in Q3, the men, more typically, because of the way we've all been socialized, have more of the bread-earning weight on their shoulders in majority terms, and then it's a question of can they, can they then shift from that role, or it? are <laughs> they attached to it, and can they even cede some of the limelight and the status and the identity to a potentially very successful spouse? And those are some of the tensions that if you can't, lead often to a separation of ways.
2: So the, the book that you wrote, Late Love, Mating and Maturity, did I get that right? Talk to us a little bit about what if, if we're reading that, what, are, what, were, what would be the, a couple of key takeaways that, that you know somebody reading that needs to walk away with?
1: it's you know again a little politically incorrectly it's an aspirational invitation to people to imagine that transitioning in your personal life is not necessarily a terrible thing Um, i think divorce is cast in all kinds of terrible awful judgmental ways i think it's time to realize again if we're gonna live to be towards a hundred year lives and we're basically ready to accept that we'll have three, four, five careers. The idea that we might and still be a good person, skilled in relationships, have two couples, maybe even three, is something that's still a little bit under discussion, right? And so this book was just an invitation to say, yeah, you know what? You make a you can make a mature, informed decision as you head into midlife, whether or not this relationship is serving both parties well, and if not, how do you design a loving exit where you can both recreate new roles in constructive ways? And so that the book charts the four phases of what that requires, leaving, looking, loving, and leaping are the four phases of almost any transition but certainly of a love transition that people might want to embark on or consider and i i recommend it to be read by men and women at your age because really what you want to do is be able to avoid the leaving decision by better understanding um what the balance should be as you shut, as you close down this first half
2: that that uh, i have to i have to smile and laugh because one of one of uh one of my favorite conversations that I that I had last, yeah, I think it was well, I think earlier this year was with a gentleman by the name of uh, Jim Sexton, and he was a prominent, he is still a prominent New York divorce attorney, and and he wrote the book, and it's behind me, and it says how to stay in love, <laughs> a divorce attorney's guide to, to to keeping marriages together and out of my office, and. Um, Jim, Jim was great. And you, you two would probably share a lot of same commonalities. He was divorced too. He, he learned from not only going through this with his clients, but through, through his own personal, um, uh, divorce as well. But I think, uh, I think you raised some really good points and, uh, that, that book will be back on that, on the shelf behind me soon. So, (laughs) I
1: think couples, you know, we talk a lot about men and women and their changing roles and all this kind of thing. A lot of that conversation has been about work, like how, and I think we need to update our thinking about the shift in gender roles and earning power and employability impacts couples at home in a way that needs to be reevaluated in modern. 21st century terms, women simply have more power. They have more power at work, they have more financial independence, which gives them more power at home, which some people like and some people really don't like. And if you're struggling with that reality, it tends to color your couple conversations.
2: So I think one of the one of the last topics that that we talked about or touched on, and and I think I already mentioned this, it's been a An interesting focal point of this show for the last two years has been life transitions, and again, you wrote a, a Harvard Business article on that titled "Learn to Get Better at Transitions," and I'll I'll link to the to the article in our show notes. But you know, in that you talk about you know, there's four four skills to being a competent transitioner, if you will. So you talk about pacing and planning, leaving gracefully, letting the inside out, and finally letting the outside in. You know, from a from a transition standpoint, Aviva, what, what would you tell our audience to be on the lookout for? And, and of those, what one or two points would you emphasize that can help people be... Better in transitions, no matter what it is, whether it's a divorce, you know, uh, children going to college, uh, losing a a career, whatever it may be. I think that's the one thing is that transitions, life transitions happen to us way more often than we give than we think about.
1: Yeah. And I think that's probably the biggest point is to normalize transition. Um, I think so often, you know, we still talk about the midlife crisis, the quarter life crisis, the later life crisis. These are not crises, they are very predictable. You are about, you know, when your kids leave, everybody, you can map it out. You know, right.
2: You know, know what's, what's going to happen.
1: happen. <laughs> um, and, you you know, there are 20 books about empty nest transitions. Um, and so I think the idea of knowing that they're going to, come along, being kind of prepared to at least discuss the consequences of them, and realizing that you're going to have very regular transitions, both in your professional life and in your personal life. And sometimes they happen at the same time, which can be particularly problematic. Um, and transition, so there are two aspects of transition. I just like to remind you, one, there's change. So change usually happens to you, right? are events in life, somebody dies, you lose a partner, you get divorced. There's a lot of loss, something you didn't choose or control. Um, the other kind of change is the kind of change you make happen yourself. The, the impact of change is very different in those two cases, right? Whether you're controlling it or suffering from it. But transition is your inner adaptation to the new reality. And how long does it take you to adapt? Um, And I just like to invite people that transitions are work. And there are skills that you can build to ease them a little bit more. One of which is, yeah, preparedness, planning. Get ready for the transitions that you can predict. uh, And also be aware that there will probably be some that you can't predict. And have some ideas of what your plans might want to be having good social networks um, and having a good body of understanding of the strengths and competences that you've built over the last decades so that where you might want to be able to transfer them um, if you have to suddenly, if you suddenly lose your job, I mean, look, we're watching the tech industry let go of tens of thousands of people who probably weren't expecting this particular transition. That's going to be tough. And they're gonna wanna build their resilience to doing that. And so the look inside, look outside pieces are the first place in transition is to go inside. It's to figure out, okay, that chapter just ended. Can I leave well? Can I shut it down well? Can I not burn the place up or be deeply angry and resentful for the next decade? Can I come to peace with the end? And then what do I want next? and not to imagine, not to automatically, which some people I'm sure who are leaving the tech world, rush into the next thing that's as close to the last thing as you possibly can find, but to invite an opening, an exploration of who am I now, because it's probably a different person than who you were when you entered into that phase. So look inside first, and then then the invitation is look outside, go explore. You, the answer, may be completely invisible to you in some new place or project that you've never heard of, never been to. And so the ability to widen your net and go and put your toe into a bunch of new things as an explorer might with a curious mind um, and a kind of growth mindset that we talk a lot about nowadays is really essential to successful relatively serene transitions?
2: I think the ability to come back to one of the, the points you've made multiple times now during our conversation is if you realize really how long life is, it can make those transitions easier and not as overwhelming. That's easier said than done in the moment, like like with any transition, but I know going through one myself about seven years ago when I went from corporate world to full time into you know my my family office uh financial planning firm Tama, um the 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 sooner I was able to let that old place go and and look forward, the whole looking in and then look out, um the the, the the better, I wouldn't say easier, but the better that transition was.
1: Yeah, like leaving, there's a great book by Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot called Exits. Um, Leaving is no joke. Leaving anything is no joke. It's a certain kind of loss. It's a certain kind of grieving. It's a certain kind of letting go. Um, And it, it may, for some people, take a bit of time it may take quite a long time, and so giving yourself that space and time, I actually think your number of seven years is significant because I think, and I usually work with my coaching clients on this, I think we go through some form of transition every seven years. All of your cells are actually new every seven years. You are actually a new human being every seven years.
2: <laughs> I don't know where I—I I literally, Aviva just read that like within the last week or two, like we're basically like, you you know, you talk about being a different person, like, and literally like every seven (laughs) years you are because your cells like are replaced. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. Well, this has been an incredible conversation, which I, you know, I'm, I was looking forward to it and it's, it's been, it's been incredible. And so I I want, I want to come back to my, my closing question that I asked all of my guests, at least those who are parents, which is the majority which is, what is the best thing about being a parent?
1: Homeschooling. But I'll say that in a slightly different way. I never homeschooled my children. They schooled me. I think children are the greatest educational gift in life. They teach you pretty well everything you need to know about yourself, about life, and about the world to come. And if you're open to listening and being a good student, you are likely to discover multitudes.
2: Well, Aviva wittenberg Cox, I I don't think that I think that's the the ultimate place to uh, to wrap up our conversation. Let me let me ask for, and we'll have lots of this in in the show notes, links to to, to articles that we've covered, your book, um, the TED Talk. But if people want to find more about you and your work, what's the best place for them to go to?
1: I have a website where for, for all of my work, which is 20-first.com. You'll find my books all over Amazon. Um, I've done several. And you won't find my personal website because I'm just refurbishing it. But I promise that by January next year, avivawittenbergcox.com will be back online in new, splendiferous, Third quarter colors.
2: <laughs> well, awesome. We'll, I'll be sure to, to to make sure that that's in the show notes as well. But Aviva, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I'll save for this first conversation because I'm sure that there's going to be a few more in our in our future for
0: sure.
1: With pleasure. All my favorite topics right here in the nutshell. <laughs> nice talking
0: to you, Paul. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast.